Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 221. Boy Wonder Arrested as Ringleader is Red's Riot in Roxbury. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm talking about a protest march by Roxbury socialists supporting a textile worker strike in Lawrence. The afternoon of May 1st, 1919 turned violent with police firing shots to disperse the crowd. In the aftermath, two officers were killed and a mob formed that hunted down and viciously beat many of the marchers. As the smoke cleared, it became clear that one of the leaders of the march was a celebrity, William James Situs, the Boy Wonder. But before we talk about the Boy Wonder and the Roxbury Riot, I just want to pause and thank the sponsors who helped me make Hub History. These are listeners like you who support the podcast financially, offsetting the costs of podcast media hosting, website hosting and security, storage and backup, and additional audio processing. They also underwrite the cost of the transcripts we now provide with each show, making this audio podcast accessible to deaf and hard-of-hearing Boston history lovers. Our sponsors make all that possible by contributing as little as $2 a month on Patreon. If you're not yet a sponsor and you'd like to be, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. By 1919, May 1st had been associated with the American labor movement since the Haymarket Massacre in Chicago over 30 years earlier. With the success of the communist Russian Revolution in 1917, both May Day and the broader labor movement were viewed with suspicion in the U.S. We've seen in episode 172 how police coordinated with right-wing rioters to attack a leftist parade in Boston in the summer of 1917. Those tensions only grew as the Soviet Union consolidated power and began attempting to spread the communist revolution around the world. In April 1919, Boston's telephone operators were on strike, but all eyes were on Lawrence, where textile workers had been out on strike for months. A description from the Swarthmore Database of Nonviolent Action describes how the strikers hoped to replicate the success of the famous Bread and Roses strike. In 1919, the United Textile Workers and the Central Labor Union, in a rush of union activity, managed to shorten the work week from 54 hours to 48 hours. The unions negotiated this reform by making a concession of an overall cut in wages, which were already below the cost of living. Immigrant workers at textile mills in Lawrence, Massachusetts, welcomed the change in hours, but could not afford a decrease in wages. Aware of a successful strike involving immigrant workers in Lawrence back in 1912, the mill workers decided to use the same tactic to combat the wage decrease. On February 3, 1919, between 17,000 and 30,000 immigrant workers walked out of the mills throughout Lawrence and began the 5448 strike. The strikers organized themselves among 20 different ethnic groups, with one leader per group. In addition, the strikers invited three pastors, known collectively as the Boston Comradeship, A.J. Must, Cedric Long, and Harold Rutzel, as spokespeople. Ethnic stores and businesses supported the strikers by accepting coupons in place of cash. Meanwhile, the strikers boycotted stores that did not support the strike. Throughout March and April, strikers and their supporters complained of police violence to the mayor and to Governor Calvin Coolidge, but they were ignored. 
By May 1st, the striking workers were broke and growing desperate, while the mill owners, in turn, were getting desperate for labor. A few weeks later, the United Textile Workers would strike a deal with the owners implementing the 48-hour work week and a 15% raise. But on May Day, tensions were high. Those tensions were reflected in supporters of both sides, as noted in the database. A large portion of strikers, as well as must, held socialist ideals, attracting the sympathy of Boston's radical circles and organizations such as the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America. However, the press did not treat the socialist leanings of the strikers favorably. Several newspapers declared the strike an attempt to start a Bolshevist revolution in America, and the city administration used the threat of communism as an excuse to place spies in strike meetings and in Lawrence's immigrant community. The newspapers weren't the only ones attempting to paint all labor activists with the communist brush. In an article about Irish Catholic anti-socialism in Boston for the Journal of American Ethnic History, Damian Murray wrote, Citing the Lawrence strike, Boston's Catholic and Irish-American leaders warned of the dangers of Bolshevism and encouraged Irish-Americans to view their ethnic group as being in the front line against socialism in Boston as May Day approached. The pilot told readers that the post-war economic dislocation presented socialist agitators with an opportunity to initiate a reign of lawlessness. It encouraged returning soldiers to join the Knights of Columbus an organization that took a leading role in the fight against socialism. Meanwhile, John F. Honey Fitz Fitzgerald's weekly newspaper, The Republic, insisted that Massachusetts mill towns were inhabited by anarchists. No one pushed for a stronger stance against socialism than David Goldstein. In the days leading up to May Day, he characterized Bolshevism as a tyrannical and atheistic movement, demanded a prohibition on public displays of the red flag, the international socialist symbol, and called for police measures to be directed against young people's socialist leagues, which he accused of spreading disaffection. As we've heard in past episodes, Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan used to boast a much more heavily Jewish population, including many recent immigrants from Eastern Europe and what had recently become the Soviet Union. As late as World War II, Jewish residents populated the Roxbury district heavily enough to be able to field their own night watch to protect against anti-Semitic violence, as we learned in our recent episode about Nazi sympathizers in Boston. 1919 found a significant portion of that European Jewish community sympathetic to some form of socialism, with a handful even embracing the Communist International and the Soviet cause. At the same time, their Irish-American neighbors were hearing a steady stream of anti-socialist and Irish nationalist propaganda from the pulpit, as Murray's piece records. Lower Roxbury lies next to Boston's South End neighborhood, where Boston College was established in 1863 on Harrison Ave. Boston College's buildings lay about a half a mile from Dudley Street in Roxbury, where the May Day 1919 riot took place. In the weeks leading up to May 1st, Boston College clergy warned local Catholics of the Bolshevik threat. On St. Patrick's Day, the Reverend John P. Meager delivered a panegyric at Boston College's Church of the Immaculate Conception, recounting Irish sacrifices for the Church for the Middle Ages and Irish-American sacrifices during the recent war. Meager said one would not find the Irishman a Bolshevik or an anarchist, never a slacker nor a coward. There's no evidence of Boston College clergy urging physical violence against socialists, 
But their attacks on socialism in the weeks before May 1st heightened the tension that existed in the immediate locality because of the presence of political radicals. In a lot of cases, labor leaders in this era were unfairly portrayed as socialists or communists, despite just wanting a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. On May Day in 1919, however, the group that met at the Roxbury Opera House, near what was then still Dudley Square, were bona fide communists. When they announced that they were planning to march from the theater to the new International Hall a few blocks away, they rallied under red flags and sang the Internationale, the universal hymn of Bolshevism. The marchers quickly found themselves outnumbered by a hostile crowd, as described by Murray. On May 1, 1919, socialists in Roxbury celebrated May Day with a mass meeting at the Dudley Street Opera House. Police and eyewitnesses later claimed that the trouble began when they were assaulted by the marchers in the parade that followed the meeting, and that the police only gained control in the resulting melee when mounted police and local citizens, many of who were soldiers and sailors, came to their aid. By contrast, socialists alleged in court that they had walked individually or in small groups along Dudley Street, where they were taunted by crowds shouting, Down with the Bolsheviki! Damn the Bolsheviki! In the case of the 1917 riot in Park Square, where the local Socialist Party headquarters was sacked, it was very clear that the leftist marchers had been attacked, at first by a few street thugs, and later in an effort coordinated between street toughs, police officers, sailors, armed soldiers, and Justice Department agents. In the case of the May Day March, responsibility for the violent riot that followed was not so clear-cut. The violence, however, did get bad, and three people eventually lost their lives. The next day's Boston Globe describes the moment when the first shots rang out. For nearly an hour, the people in the zone bounded by Dudley, Warren, and Monroe Streets and Humboldt Ave were terrorized by a running fight between the rioters and policemen. At Humboldt Ave and Monroe Street, where the paraders made their last stand after being partially dispersed at several other points, a fusillade of bullets cleared the thoroughfares of everyone except those directly involved in the fight. It was here that policeman Arthur Shea of Station 10 was shot through the index finger of the right hand, and Adolf Buttimer of Station 9 was shot in the left leg. With drawn revolvers, a squad of six policemen from Station 9, in command of Sergeant Arthur Casey, ordered the parade to halt at the corner of Warren and Waverly Streets. Up to this time, there was no serious disturbance. While the paraders were proceeding through Warren Street, five riot calls were received at headquarters, and the commanding officers at the 19 police stations scattered through the city each sent five policemen post-haste to Roxbury. Henry J. Levitt, a dentist, had just left his office when a stray bullet penetrated his right foot. Earlier in the fighting, policeman Samuel Hutchins of Station 9 was stabbed in the shoulder. That Sergeant Casey would pose for photographs with a few members of the reactionary mob who had fought the marchers, which ran in the Globe with a caption calling them men who helped police when the riot started. Perhaps they were the gang Murray referred to in describing how poorly the afternoon's fighting went for the marchers. According to a socialist spokesperson, the police projected themselves into the crowd with drawn clubs, supported by onlookers on the sidewalks. Socialists also claimed that both the police and non-socialists used sticks and clubs, 
and that one officer told a bystander to get his gang together. Regardless of who started it, a running fight lasting over an hour took place in Roxbury, in which 113 people were arrested, two policemen and a civilian were shot, and dozens were injured. Two policemen later died, one from heart failure and another from a gunshot wound. Reporting in the May 2nd Globe outlines how the mob became so violent that simply being seen on the street wearing red could lead to a beating, or worse. Throughout the Roxbury district last night, feeling ran so high against the rioters that everyone appearing on the street wearing red so conspicuously as to attract attention was in danger. People of foreign birth who apparently had nothing to do with the day's disturbance were pursued by crowds, and the extra police detailed to riot duty had their hands full preserving order until nearly midnight. One of the many innocent victims of the afterclap of the rioting was William Lipsky, who was struck down in a fight in which he otherwise had no part at 6.30 and remained unconscious from a blow in the head until 9.30 at the office of Dr. Edelstein. He was then removed to the city hospital. Murray's article corroborates and draws from the Globe's reporting. For several hours after the street battle, gangs of soldiers and sailors roamed the streets of Roxbury seeking out socialists. One unfortunate victim, Hyman Stern, was chased into a local store by a crowd of soldiers and sailors. Later, in court, witnesses testified that he was dragged outside by the crowd and beaten with clubs and sticks. According to Stern, he was arrested and then beaten in the truck by police while the crowd chanted, Bolshevik! Bolshevik! That evening at Station 9, where the walls and booking desk were splashed with the prisoner's blood, a Globe reporter witnessed police officers trying to bring a group of prisoners into the station. They had to make their way through soldiers and sailors shouting, Kill them! Kill them! The Globe reporter wrote that, One thin little emaciated prisoner, his shirt front saturated with blood, was nearly felled by a club in the hands of a sailor, as the victim was being half-carried up the steps into Station 9 by his captors. With the benefit of hindsight, it's a little bit funny to read how enthusiastically the police participated in violence against a march that was supposed to be in support of the Lawrence strike. After all, just a few months later, in September, the Boston police would also walk off the job in an unprecedented police strike. The May 2nd Globe shed some light on who was arrested during the parade and in the fighting that followed it including a woman who we featured before on the show for her role in a different radical protest. Nearly half the paraders were women, and during the clash with the police, which first occurred at the corner of Warren and Waverly Streets, they fought with such hysterical abandon that when they were bundled into patrol wagons, most of them were on the point of complete collapse. One woman was reported to be in such condition that she will shortly need the attention of a physician. Martha H. Foley of West Park Street, Dorchester, who was booked at Station 9 on the charge of inciting a riot, is one of the 22 militant suffragists arrested in front of the State House on February 24th, during President Wilson's visit to Boston. See episode 173 for more on that incident. Huddled together in quarters where there are only three cells, the 18 women in custody at Station 9 presented a sorry spectacle last night. But they were in high spirits and responded as well as they could, most of them in broken English, to militant suffragist songs led by Miss Foley. 
On the first day of her trial, on May 7th, suffragists fully poked holes in some of the prosecution's allegations. The Globe reported that she testified about taking cover in a doorway after police attacked the marchers with billy clubs. From there, she could see the crowd break up and run from the blows raining down upon them. She said she saw an officer draw his revolver as the crowd ran away, and then... Under cross-examination, she denied that she had struck at and kicked officers, as testified to by Sergeant Casey. She also denied having heard women shouting to the men to kill the police, or urging them to action. Ms. Foley stated that the police failed to warn the crowd of soldiers, sailors, and civilians that they should not harm the paraders. And she testified that she saw a sailor strike a parader on the head with a large piece of wood. Two days after the parade, District Attorney Joseph Pelletier warned about the Red Menace that he believed was lurking among the immigrant population in Boston. The Bolsheviks are right here in our midst, in very large numbers. It's no longer a Russian word that means something horrible in faraway Russia. It is an actual present condition right here in Boston. At about that same time, the DA was also asking for increased powers for Boston's police captains, enabling them to disperse gatherings of this kind and command assistance of all persons present to suppress riot or unlawful assembly or suppress persons engaged therein. The law authorizes the mayor, selectman, sheriff, or deputy sheriff to act in the name of the state to suppress a riot. As soon as the day after the riot, marchers were being tried in Roxbury District Court, with the evening edition of The Globe on May 2nd reporting on the outcome for five men charged with participating in an affray. Three of the defendants were found not guilty and discharged. Two were found guilty and sentenced to serve two months in the House of Corrections. Two more marchers were convicted of assault and battery, and a soldier who was charged with assault on a marcher had his case continued without finding. After lunch, court adjourned, and much of the rest of the day was spent trying to process and arraign upwards of a 100 prisoners who'd been in lockup at police stations 9, 10, and 16 since the night before. Below the fold on page 7, there's a brief mention of one specific protester who was arrested during the parade. Among the prisoners is William Sidus, son of the Professor Boris Sidus, formerly of Harvard College. Young Sidus, who appeared to be little worried by the developments of yesterday, gave his address as Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He had been professor of mathematics in a Texas college, but came to Boston a short time ago to study law. By the next morning, that mention had moved from page 7 to the headlines on the front page. Sidus, Harvard boy wonderer in dock, said to have borne red flag. And on the inside pages, that headline's explained. The outstanding feature of the court proceedings came in the middle of the afternoon, when William Sidus, age 21, the boy phenomenon who has graduated from Harvard while in his teens, was charged with rioting. Justice Hayden called Sergeant Dennis Casey of the Dudley Street Station to the bench and inquired of him if he could identify Sidus as one of the marchers. Sergeant Casey stated he could. Recognizing him, he said, as one of those who held a red flag aloft in the vanguard of the parade. On May 5th, a bystander tied Sidus's role as the standard bearer to shocking behavior. The Boston Globe described his testimony. 
He said he saw a great commotion, and one man who'd been passed a small American flag by somebody flung it on the ground, trampled on it, and said, To hell with the American flag. Though no name was attached to this outburst in testimony, the press would pin these comments on Sidus in the next few days. In the days that followed, the total number of arrests at the May Day Parade was tallied at 113. A police captain named Lee would die of sudden cardiac arrest the morning after the parade. Another officer who was shot succumbed a few days later. And a patrolman who was stabbed during the parade remained in serious condition. The arraignments and trials dragged on for weeks, and then for months. District Attorney Joseph C. Pelletier pushed for the harshest possible sentences. The men who were found guilty need expect no mercy or leniency from the district attorney. I will do all in my power to persuade the court to impose the maximum sentence on everyone convicted. Meanwhile, one of the defense attorneys publicly questioned Judge Albert Hayden's objectivity. On May 9th, the Globe reported, Attorney Edward F. Shanley, appearing for many of the defendants, made a motion that the case be tried before another judge. Mr. Shanley told the court that during the past few days, he'd been of the opinion that the court had prejudged the cases against the alleged rioters, and that in view of this, he believed it would be a good idea to have another justice hear the case. Judge Albert F. Hayden, who's been on the bench since the trials began a week ago, informed the attorney Shanley that he was able to provide over these cases as well as any other justice. A few days later, Judge Hayden appeared to retaliate by removing Shanley's ability to examine witnesses during the trial, instead only hearing questioning from his co-counsel, Thomas Connolly. Yet a few more days later, the Commonwealth's Supreme Judicial Court dismissed the first petitions for appeal that resulted from the Roxbury riot. Finally, on May 14th, William James Sidus took the stand, with the Globe reporting that he testified, Asked by Judge Hayden if he advocated the control of the industries of the country by force, Sidus replied he countenanced force only when necessary. Judge Hayden next asked if he believed in what the American flag stands for, and Sidus replied that he did, to a certain degree, in the sense of the Declaration of Independence. Why did you not carry the American flag? asked the judge. And to this, Sidus replied, I had one in my pocket. Sidus said he believed there would have been no trouble if the marchers had not been interfered with by the police and the hoodlums. He declared the red flag could not be insulted. Attorney Connolly held up the red banner and asked Sidus if he cared if the flag was trampled on or spat on. To this, Sidus answered, It's only a piece of red silk. On the same day, the Boston Herald carried a more detailed transcript of the DA's questioning and Sidus's testimony. What did the chairman at the Opera House say to those assembled? He said that there was going to be a meeting at New International Hall, and that we should all go. So I went with the crowd to the New Hall. Where were you when the paraders left the hall? At the beginning, I was in the rear of the line, and at different parts of the line at different times. When we reached Walnut Ave and Warren Street, I was in the rear. Were you carrying a red flag? I was carrying a red flag, three feet by three feet. It was a piece of red silk tacked to a piece of stick. 
Do you remember Witness Sullivan? He yelled to me to take down the flag. I made no reply. Are you a socialist? Yes. Do you believe in the Soviet form of government? I do. Will you state briefly what the Soviet form of government is? That will be a rather difficult thing to do. Could you give his honor a description in 100 words? The Soviet form of government is the present revolutionary form in Russia. The word Soviet is the Russian word for council. The general principle is that those who do socially useful work are to control the government and industries of the country, as officials in government do in general. The fundamental principle is that everybody is supposed to work. Do you understand that they intend to get control through industries in which they work? So I understand. By force if necessary. I understand every government employs a certain power to suppress opposition. That doesn't answer the question. You said before that the people want control of the industries of the country. I want to know whether you advocate by force the control of the industries of the country or by the use of the ballot. I countenance the use of force only in cases where it should be necessary, and I base my statement on a comparison with the Declaration of Independence of the United States government, which states clearly that the people shall only be governed with the consent of the governed. Do you believe in a god? No. Here Sidus said that the kind of a god that he did not believe in was the big boss of the Christians adding that he believed in something that was way apart from a human being. Asked by his attorney if the Soviet ideals necessarily implied violence, he replied in the negative, stating that there should not be any violence on the road to that goal. At the end of the day, William James was convicted. The New York Times reported on his sentence, William James Citus. 21 years old, was sentenced in the Roxbury Municipal Court today to six months in the House of Correction for rioting, and one year for assault upon a police officer, and the May Day radical demonstration in the Roxbury District. As we've learned in past episodes, it was certainly not unusual for Boston police and prosecutors to find a pretext to lock up left-wing radicals in the years surrounding World War I. We've heard about the pro-draft and anti-socialist riot in Park Square in 1917, about the plight of the suffragists, and about the conductor of the Boston Symphony, who was arrested and eventually deported for not playing the Star-Spangled Banner before concerts. So a 21-year-old activist who admitted to being an atheistical pro-Soviet socialist and got convicted of rioting certainly doesn't seem very noteworthy. Except for one thing. William James Sidus was widely held to be the smartest man in the world at the time. Perhaps even the smartest of all time. In a 2011 piece, the writers for NPR's All Things Considered said, His IQ was estimated to be 50 to 100 points higher than Albert Einstein's. He could read the New York Times before he was two. At age six, his language repertoire included English, Latin, French, German, Russian, Hebrew, Turkish, and Armenian. Young William's parents had emigrated from Ukraine separately in the 1880s to escape anti-Semitic pogroms. His father, Boris, completed his bachelor's, master's, PhD, and MD degrees at Harvard, 
after being released from a Russian prison for violating the empire's legal restrictions on what Jews were allowed to do. William's mother, Sarah, received her M.D. at the BU School of Medicine after studying for the entrance exams at night while working as a seamstress in a sweatshop during the day. Boris Sidus was a friend and follower of the philosopher William James, and he named his son William James Sidus in his honor. Boris also had a strong belief in the power of suggestion, writing an academic treatise on its utility in the field of psychology. Now these two doctors had an infant human of their own to test out their theories on. Though there would later be rumors of extreme, even psychologically abusive methods, Sarah Sidus would always claim that she started out by buying a set of alphabet blocks and simply spending time rolling around on the floor with her infant son spelling out words until he could do it himself. She later wrote, Before he was two, he would go gravely to the bookcase and pick out any book that a visitor asked for. This so amused and pleased them that he soon took pleasure in opening the books and reading from them to his father and guests. And by the time he was three, he read well. When he asked me something that I didn't know, I would stop anything I was doing and say, let's look it up. He would take down the child's encyclopedia I had bought him, and we'd look it up together. After we had done this a few times, he asked me a question one day, then triumphantly said, but you will say, let's look it up, and I can look it up myself. That's the last lesson I gave Billy. During the day, he would go occasionally to his room and close the door and read. He never studied. What teaching he had during those first four years, I gave him. The methods I used were Boris's methods. The methods Boris used were nothing more or less than those of Socrates. The whole secret of Billy's education was that we planted in him early a love of learning. Boris said and wrote flatly, time after time, this boy's progress in education was made because of the environment in which he has been reared, not because he is a, quote, genius. In 2015, David B. Green described the young student's quick progress. By age three, having taught himself to type, he wrote Macy's a letter ordering toys. By eight, he had mastered Latin, Greek, German, Russian, Hebrew, Turkish, French, Armenian and also invented his own virtual language, which he called Vendergood. Before long, Boris and Sarah Sidus believed that their son was ready to go off to Harvard, but Harvard wasn't so sure. Young William applied to the elite university at the ripe old age of nine, but his application was rejected. Not because he didn't meet the school's criteria for admission, but because he was considered too immature. A September 1908 article in the New York Times points out that by the time he was 10 years old, William Sidus was beyond precocious. William J. Sidus, a 10-year-old Brookline boy who was withdrawn from the Brookline High School because he was already further advanced than the school course called for, has just passed successfully the entrance examination for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The average age of the student entering the institute is 21 and many students are college graduates. He spent the next year commuting from Brookline to Tufts every day, chaperoned by his mother. At Tufts, he continued studying mathematics, then reapplied to Harvard at age 11. 
This time he was accepted. Harvard President Lawrence Lowell had publicly commented that he wanted to try admitting younger freshmen, saying, The present age of entrance here appears to be due less to the difficulty of preparing for the examination earlier than to the nature of the life the freshman leads. Lowell was seen as a progressive in his own time, though history has not smiled on his policies that limited Jewish enrollment, his attempt to segregate the residence halls, and his secret court that purged the campus of gay students. Hearing Lowell's call for younger students, Boris had William reapply, and when he was accepted, the New York Times reported that he is no prodigy but a normal boy trained from his earliest years to think vigorously is the contention of his father, who has applied practically in the upbringing of his son certain laws of the mind, which he has observed in common with Professor William James, after whom the boy is named. During his first semester at Harvard, the young Sidus would prove that he had the intellect not only to learn at the August University, but even to teach there. A later New Yorker retrospective on Sidus's life recalled, One snowy January evening in 1910, about a hundred professors and advanced students of mathematics from Harvard University gathered in a lecture hall in Cambridge to listen to a speaker by the name of William James Sidus. He had never addressed an audience before, and he was abashed and a little awkward at the start. His listeners had to attend closely, for he spoke in a small voice that did not carry well and he punctuated his talk with nervous, shrill laughter. A thatch of fair hair fell far over his forehead, and keen blue eyes peered out from what one of those present later described as a pixie-like face. The speaker wore black velvet knickers. He was eleven years old. As the boy warmed to his subject, his shyness melted, and there fell upon his listeners' ears the most remarkable words they'd ever heard from the lips of a child. William James Sidus had chosen for the subject of his lecture four-dimensional bodies. Even in this selective group of erudite gentlemen, there were those who were unable to follow all the processes of the little boy's thoughts. To such laymen as were present, the fourth dimension, as it was demonstrated that night, must indeed have perfectly fitted its colloquial definition, a speculative realm of incomprehensibly involved relationships. When it was all over, the distinguished professor Daniel F. Comstock of MIT was moved to predict to reporters, who had listened in profound bewilderment, that young Sidus would grow up to be the greatest mathematician, a famous leader in the world of science. Sidus thrived at Harvard at first, but he was also under a huge amount of pressure from his parents, professors, peers, and the press. One of his father's guiding principles had been a law of reserve energy laid out by William James. It speculated that much as a sufficiently trained athlete can push through fatigue and find a second wind, a trained and motivated academic can push through distress and find nearly limitless reserves of mental energy. For much of his short life, William Sidus had seemed to be the living proof of his namesake's theory. But just days after his lecture on four-dimensional math, the New York Times reported, From Boston comes the news, sure to excite a loud chorus of, I told you so, that young Sidus, the marvelous boy of Harvard, the astonishing product of a new and better system of education, has broken down from the overwork and is now in a state of nervous prostration, 
seriously alarming to his family and friends. It is not yet time to reach a conclusion. Young Sidus's breakdown may be due less to the ardor of his studying or the extent of his precocious attainments than to the morbid excitements and excessive attention to which he probably has been subjected ever since he leaped into fame as a result of his lecture on fourth-dimensional geometry. It is not improbable that these people have pestered the child into a condition of psychasthenia that had nothing at all to do with his work, and that the mistake was not in teaching or letting him learn too much, but in not protecting him from the wearisome exclamations and admirations of injudicious observers. Young William left Harvard for a time and received treatment at his father's sanatorium in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. When he returned to the university, the 1937 New Yorker profile reports, Citus was a changed man. When finally he came back to Harvard, he was retiring and shy. He could not be persuaded to lecture again. He began to show a marked distrust of people, a fear of responsibility, and a general maladjustment to his abnormal life. He did not mingle much with students, and he ran from newspapermen, but they cornered him, of course, on the day of his graduation as a Bachelor of Arts in 1914. He was 16 years old. He wore long trousers then, and he faced the reporters who descended on the yard with less of a feeling of embarrassment than he had as a knickered child. But definite phobias had developed in him. I want to live the perfect life, William told the newspaperman. The only way to live the perfect life is to live it in seclusion. I've always hated crowds. For crowds, it was not hard to read people. The press attention continued after graduation. In 1953, one of his schoolmates remembered how the papers covered William Sidus in his career to the Boston Globe, saying, In his childhood, Sidus received more than his share of publicity. The papers had a field day when Sidus received a job at the new Rice Institute in Houston, Texas, under the sponsorship of his friend Evans. He failed to show the maturity and tact needed to make good at this impossible task. In 1916, after being fired from his position teaching geometry and freshman math at Rice, William James Sidus returned to Cambridge. He enrolled at Harvard Law, where he continued until March 19, 1919, when he withdrew in good standing during his final year. A month and a half later, he was arrested at the head of a protest march in Roxbury. After his initial conviction, William Sidus appealed remaining free on bond. While awaiting a second trial, he worked as a private tutor, placing an ad in each week's Boston Globe that said, Former college teacher desires to give private lessons in mathematics, logic, or French. Rates reasonable. For further information, write to W.J. Sidus, Harvard's boy prodigy, son of Dr. Boris Sidus, 885 Washington Street, Boston. Meanwhile, his father Boris was working hard to make sure that the second trial never happened. He came to an understanding with the district attorney. The DA would null-pross the charges against William, as long as he was committed to Boris's sanatorium in New Hampshire, and as long as William didn't come back to Massachusetts. He finally wrote a memorandum stating, Defendant was infant prodigy at Harvard is mentally abnormal and has been confined in a sanatorium for some months, is in no condition to stand trial, 
and his condition mentally is disturbed because of fear of arrest in this case. I shall no further prosecute. There followed a dark period in William James Sidus's life. Writing about himself in the third person, Sidus recalled what his treatment was like at the Portsmouth Sanatorium. The sentence was appealed. Such procedure is normal in Massachusetts District Court. But before the appeal could come to trial, he was kidnapped by his parents, by arrangement with the district attorney, and was taken to a sanatorium operated by them. He was kept there a full year, from October 1919 to October 1920, and kept under various kinds of mental torture, consisting of being scolded and nagged at, everything that did or did not happen was grounds for a tongue-lashing protracted over many hours, for an average of six to eight hours a day. Sometimes this scolding was administered while he was loaded with sleeping medicine, or after being waked up out of a sound sleep. And the threat of being transferred to a regular insane asylum was held up in front of him constantly, with detailed descriptions of the tortures practiced there, as well as of the simple legal process by which he could be committed to such a place. He was unlawfully in the sanatorium, but could not escape while the watch was being kept, for the criminal case was kept pending against him and it was on the court records that he had jumped bail. Being kidnapped, he could not appear for trial, or even know that trial had been called. Many years later, one of his Harvard classmates recalled in 1953, Sidus broke down after this episode. He developed a resentment against his family so bitter that he would not even attend the funeral of his father, and a resentment against all mathematics, science, and learning. Indeed, he developed a hatred for anything that might put him in a position of responsibility and give him the need to make decisions. From at least 1921 onwards, he floated around East Coast cities, working at any low-level job as a clerk or computer that allowed him to remain anonymous. When he wasn't at work, he was busy writing books on Native American contributions to American democracy, the history and classification of streetcar transfers, a travel guide to the White Mountains, and a theory of thermodynamics that first postulated the existence of black holes and dark matter. A researcher cataloged four books, four pamphlets, 13 articles, four periodicals, of a total of 36 issues, and 89 weekly magazine columns. The columns were called Meet Boston, and they chronicled history and trivia about the city under the pen name Jacob Marmer. There's evidence in his papers of six more unpublished book manuscripts, and since he wrote under at least five pseudonyms, researchers believe that there may be many more published works that he never acknowledged. Anytime the press caught up with him in these anonymous office jobs, he would soon pack up and move on. The 1937 New Yorker profile I've been quoting from said, Apparently he drifted from city to city, working as a clerk or in some other minor capacity, for a salary only large enough for him to subsist on. In 1924, he was dragged back into the news when a reporter found him working in an office on Wall Street at $23 a week. He was dismayed at being discovered. He said that all he wanted was to make just enough to live on and to work at something that required a minimum of mental effort. The last few reporters who went down to his office to interview him didn't get to see him. He had quit his job and disappeared again. A baker's dozen years later, the New Yorker caught up with Sidus in Boston in 1937. 
The article's attributed to Jared L. Manley, though that turns out to be a pseudonym of James Thurber, a regular cartoonist and columnist for the magazine. To get William Citus to talk, however, the magazine used a secret weapon. A woman. William James Citus lives today at the age of 39 in a hall bedroom of Boston's shabby South End. For a picture of him and his activities, this record is indebted to a young woman who recently succeeded in interviewing him there. She found him in a small room papered with the design of huge pinkish flowers, considerably discolored. There was a large, untidy bed and an enormous wardrobe trunk standing half open. A map of the United States hung on one wall. On a table beside the door was a pack of streetcar transfers neatly held together with an elastic. On a dresser were two photographs, one, surprisingly enough, of Citus as the boy genius. The other, a sweet-faced girl with shell-rimmed glasses and an elaborate Marcel wave. There was also a desk with a tiny ancient typewriter, a world almanac, a dictionary, a few reference books, and a library book, which the young man's visitor at one point picked up. Oh, gee, said Sidus, that's just one of those crook stories. He directed her attention to the little typewriter. You can pick it up with one finger, he said, and did so. William Sidus at age 39 is a large, heavy man with a prominent jaw, a thickish neck, and a reddish mustache. His light hair falls down over his brow, as it did the night he lectured to the professors in Cambridge. His eyes have an expression which varies from the ingenious to the wary. When he's wary, he has a kind of incongruous dignity which breaks down suddenly into the gleeful abandon of a child on holiday. He seems to have difficulty in finding the right words to express himself, but when he does, he speaks rapidly, nodding his head jerkily to emphasize his points, gesturing with his left hand, uttering occasionally a curious, gasping laugh. He seems to get a great and ironic enjoyment out of leading a life of wandering irresponsibility after a childhood of scrupulous regimentation. His visitor found in him a certain childlike charm. The article notes that he's working at the time as a clerk in a business house, but he acknowledges that he's frequently forced to switch jobs. Whenever his co-workers find out that he was once a famous child prodigy, he says that he can't tolerate the position after that. He also insists on jobs with little responsibility and no technical or mathematical thought, even when he accepted a position with the street railway, a seemingly perfect fit for a devoted collector of streetcar transfers. He lasted just one hour before breaking down in tears on top of a pile of blueprints, charts, and statistical tables. The article concludes, His visitor was emboldened at last to bring up the prediction made by Professor Comstock of MIT back in 1910 that the little boy who lectured that year on the fourth dimension to a gathering of learned men would grow up to be a great mathematician, a famous leader in the world of science. It's strange, said William James Sidus with a grin. But you know, I was born on April Fool's Day. Apparently, Mr. Sidus wasn't pleased with how the New Yorker article turned out, and he decided to sue. As law professor Samantha Barbus put it, Humiliated and outraged, Sidus sued under the tort of invasion of privacy by public disclosure of private facts. 
the original Warren and Brandeis conception of the right to privacy, which permits damages to be awarded for the dignitary harms caused by the publication of true but embarrassing private information. He filed a libel suit in the Southern District of New York, and the case would eventually be decided by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Their ruling established sweeping protections for public interest and public figures, interpreted broadly. The 1940 decision reads, in part, Despite eminent opinion to the contrary, we are not yet disposed to afford to all of the intimate details of private life an absolute immunity from the prying of the press. Everyone will agree that at some point the public interest in obtaining information becomes dominant over the individual's desire for privacy. Warren and Brandeis were willing to lift the veil somewhat in the case of public officers. We would go further, though we're not yet prepared to say how far. At least, we would permit limited scrutiny of the private life of any person who has achieved, or has had thrust upon him, the questionable and indefinable status of a public figure. William James Sidus was once a public figure. As a child prodigy, he excited both admiration and curiosity. Of him, great deeds were expected. In 1910, he was a person about whom the newspapers might display a legitimate intellectual interest, in the sense meant by Warren and Brandeis, as distinguished from a trivial and unseemly curiosity. But the precise motives of the press we regard as unimportant. And even if Citus had loathed public attention at the time, we think his uncommon achievements and his personality would have made the attention permissible. Since then, Citus has cloaked himself in obscurity, but his subsequent history, containing as it did the answer to the question of whether or not he had fulfilled his early promise, was still a matter of public concern. The article in The New Yorker sketched the life of an unusual personality, and it possessed considerable popular news interest. We express no comment on whether or not the newsworthiness of the matter printed will always constitute a complete defense. Revelations may be so intimate and so unwarranted in view of the victim's position as to outrage the community's notions of decency. But when focused on public characters, truthful comments upon dress, speech, habits, and the ordinary aspects of personality will usually not transgress this line. Regrettably or not, the misfortunes and frailties of neighbors and public figures are subjects of considerable interest and discussion to the rest of the population. And when such are the mores of the community, it would be unwise for a court to bar their expression in the newspapers, books, and magazines of the day. Professor Barbus says, The legacy of William James Sidus and the Sidus case has been kept alive in privacy case law, popular culture, and the ongoing paradox of privacy. The public's pension for protesting the media's invasions of privacy while at the same time enjoying peering into other people's private lives. While the public can be callous when it comes to invading the privacy of public figures, especially entertainment stars, it continues to demonstrate a genuine sympathy for Sidus-like figures. Tragic, vulnerable individuals exploited by the media's hunger for the intimate details of personal life, and to protest when it thinks the media have gone too far. The article that Citus believed went too far came out almost 20 years after his brush with Boston's legal system after the Roxbury March. When asked, he seemed almost bemused about the fuss. 
When the May Day demonstration of 1919 was brought up by the young woman, he looked at the portrait of the girl on his dresser and said, she was in it. She was one of the rebel forces. He nodded his head vigorously as if pleased with that phrase. I was the flag bearer, he went on. And do you know what the flag was? Just a piece of red silk. He gave his curious laugh. Red silk, he repeated. On July 14, 1944, Sidus's rooming house landlord called the Brookline police after finding the unemployed clerk in a coma in his room. She told the press that he had been ill for four days. He was admitted to the Brigham, and he died of a cerebral hemorrhage three days later, with his Globe obituary reading, Seeking refuge from endless columns of newspaper feature stories in the obscurity of $15-a-week clerkships, William James Sidus yesterday produced headlines once again, and for the last time, when he died at the age of 46, a destitute patient in the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital. In a small act of vindication for a man who had spent his entire adult life closely guarding his privacy and managing his public persona, a friend wrote to the Globe a few days later to say, This is about Bill Sidus, who died July 17th. His numerous friends do not like the false newspaper picture of him as a pauper and antisocial recluse. Bill Sidus held a clerical position until two weeks ago. For two weeks, he had received unemployment compensation for the first time in his life. On the day of his death, he was to start on a new job for which he had already been hired. Bill Sidus paid his way. He was no burden on society. He knew dozens of stories from Boston's history and told them with relish. Sidus had plenty of loyal friends. All of them found his ideas stimulating and his personality likable. Bill Sidus was a quiet man who enjoyed the normal things of life. His friends respected him and enjoyed his company. I'm glad to have been one of his friends. Shirley S. Smith to learn more about the Roxbury Riot and the Boy Wonder, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 221. I'll have links to Damian Murray's article about Irish Catholic anti-socialism in Boston in the Journal of American Ethnic History, coverage of the May Day March and Riot from the Boston Globe, and a treasure trove of sources about William James Sidus, including the 1937 New Yorker profile that helped redefine privacy rights in America. If you're feeling ambitious, I'll also link to online editions of William James Sidus's book that inferred the existence of black holes and dark matter, as well as to his father Boris's book on the psychological principle of suggestion. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 